Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Critical Q&A videos, or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, guys, I thought I would try to mix it up a little bit this week. Um, we have live episodes sometimes, and I am never able to answer all the questions I get when people are in a live stream. We have to cut it off at a certain time, and so there's a bunch of questions left hanging. And I forgot that I had actually cut and pasted all of the last, from the last live stream we did, uh, into a file. And so I found that, and I thought, oh, that would make a good Q&A episode. So I'm going to go through all those questions that were left hanging, and we'll see uh, how long this takes, but I think it'll fill out a regular uh, length episode for us. I'm going to, um, I just kind of put them in the order that they came in, so it's not flash and Some of them will be short answers, some of them might be a little bit longer. Let's just see how this goes. So, here we go. Charlie Hunt. How is being in the hole justified in a country like the U.S. who has freedom and free choice, a legal system, and so on? To me, it's something like the gulags in North Korea. Well, yeah, it is a lot like the gulags in North Korea. And I have actually spoken about this at length on my, in, in other shows where I talk about the fact that you have people who are so dedicated to belief system or to an ideology that they are willing to forego personal comfort, uh, personal freedoms, uh, in, even individuality to a great degree. And, um, of course, in America, this runs completely contrary to the entire culture and uh, the upbringing of America, which is rugged individualism and, you know, the rights of the individual over the rights of the group. So, you know, it's really hard. I think I get this question mostly from Americans, but, uh, you know, but abuse and human rights violations, of course, are universal. And that's what's going on, you know, in the whole. Um, all I can say from my own experience with it, and I was never in the hole, that's something that happens at, at uh, the international management base or wherever else Miscavige might have set that kind of nonsense up. Um, uh, and by that I mean that sometimes he sends people or, or groups off to other countries. You know, Australia used to be a dumping ground. I don't know if it still is. Um, anyway... Uh, for Scientology, I mean, right? Okay, so uh, the mindset is one of uh, dedication, duty, honor, also the whole twisted thing in Scientology about how everything is always your fault. Everything is always your responsibility. If things are going wrong or things are going bad, it's because you're not making them go right. And, uh, and Scientologists really take that seriously, and it's a, it's a gradual but thorough indoctrination into that mindset where the point of view is, is everything that's happening around you somehow is your causation. You know, if, and if something bad comes in, you pulled it in, so you have to take responsibility for that, and that usually entails finding what it was that you were doing, what moral transgressions you've been up to, that caused you to have some spiritual chinks in your armor that would cause you to pull in something horrible and awful. And that would be all Scientologists from the bottom to the top. They all buy into that philosophy. Um, so anyway, so that when you're in that kind of mindset, then of course when people are doing horrible things to you, it's a lot easier to rationalize the way that you are 
pulling it in because you are because of your own wrongdoing. And had you not done those horrible, awful things that you have done leading up to this awfulness, you wouldn't be here in the first place. You know, so that's part of the reasoning for it, of course, until they, uh, you know, get a clue and <laughs> take a hike. Chris Clonotis. What are still ends told about Ron and Jenna and all of the Hubbard defendants leaving? Do they even know? No, not really. You know, it's, it's, I mean, of course people who knew Ron Miscavige Sr. on base know that he left. Uh, so it would be known at the int base. But in general terms, Scientology-wide, they're not going to comment or talk about that kind of thing. It's going to be up to, you know, the people who leave to make themselves known in a public venue. And even then, Scientologists, you know, keep their eyes shut. I, I thought looking at this that, you know, I don't know that I've ever, uh, well, I don't know that I've ever really gone into the, the, to the detail of, you know, Scientology really covers up what goes on in the real world to the Sea Org. You know, the public Scientologists, they're going to see whatever they're going to see on the news and stuff. Scientology can't do a whole lot to stop them except um, the control measures that we've described, which are pretty effective, by the way. Um, but they, it's not like Scientology can go into public people's homes, put cameras there. You know, they, they don't have that degree of control over the public. But over the staff, they have, a more, they have more control. And over the Sea Org, they have total control. They literally do have cameras in the hallways and sometimes even in the rooms. Um, so they really can monitor. And they also, of course, censor the Internet that uh, Sea Org members have available to them when they're on a Sea Org base or anywhere around there. And they put software on their laptops or phones to keep them from being able to look up all the nasty, horrible stuff on Scientology. Um, so that, so they really do engage in a very, very heavy amount of information control. Uh, so that's, that's how that happens. And uh, Scientologists who do find out about Jenna or Ron or any of the other prominent critics who leave or who have left, um, they're given a lengthy briefing, uh, usually a couple pages worth of information or even a whole binder worth of information called a dead agent pack. And that is used to uh, totally defame the character, just complete character assassination, of the individual who left. So that if anybody does come around ethics asking, hey, well, I saw him on Nightline and well, I, my mind was blown. Isn't that David Miscavige's father? Yeah, but he's completely off the rails and totally evil. And, you know, here's this binder of information about him and what a horrible, awful person he is. And you wouldn't think that, you know, such activity would be so readily accepted by Scientologists, except for the fact that they're usually so deep in that they are looking for any excuse to rationalize away why David Miscavige's fa own father or niece or, like I said, Leah or Mike or other prominent critics would speak out. They want to nullify that in their own brain as quickly as possible, right? And so Scientology provides them with all the rationalization they need to do that. Kyle Howarth, how does your wife deal with yourself as you've been in a cult whereas she hasn't? Yeah, sorry for the typographical errors there. <laughs> I literally cut and pasted it and now I'm just reading it right from how they were left in the YouTube comments when we were doing our live stream. So how does my wife feel about all of this? Uh, well, we've talked about it a little bit, but um, 
For from my position, I thought I'd answer this and say that I think it has been interesting for her. I think it's been difficult at times. Um, in um, you know, there are ups and downs, and it's like dealing with people who have this, you know, PTSD or depression or anxiety or whatever the you know whatever labels or words you want to throw around. You know, people, loved ones of people who are who have those conditions, uh, is can be trying sometimes and even exhausting at times. And self care is very important and all that. So, um, you know, both Melissa and I take care to, you know, make sure that we are engaging in self care. Uh, you know, uh, but I think uh, I, I, you know, from out from all uh, signs and everything that she has told me, she's been a real trooper with this and has been. Uh, an unbelievable uh, pillar of support for me. Uh, she has been a real rock in my world and, uh, and a very necessary one. So um, I just love her to death. Preacher1138. Loved your episodes on LRH's data series. Would love more analysis on the Church of Scientology from an intelligence slash business point of view. Could you do some more on that angle? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely will be doing more on that as the Basics of Scientology series comes out. You'll see more on that stuff uh, when we get into the business chapters on organization and the organizing board and all that nonsense. We'll take all of that stuff apart. Cat 65. How did you and Melissa meet? My wife and I met at the Secular Hub, which is a group, uh, obviously a secular group here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, which is a meetup group, but also a, a rented, you know, space that is permanently there for secular organizations here in Denver. So I hooked up with them right away when I moved to Denver year, about three or um, four, a little over four years ago. And, um, and then I was just part of the group and I was in, you know, social activities, there's meets and, and there's movie nights and there's various things that you can do all from a secular angle. So there's also speaking events and stuff. And, um, and we just kind of got to know each other a little bit that way. And then uh, we met on Facebook and then we met in person again because we both had a mutual friend who was doing comedy and we uh, were hanging out with her. And then I was kind of like, I think I want to hang out with her. And, <laughs> and I uh, started asking Melissa out and then we, you know, the rest is history. Arlene Potash. I recall you saying the failed Ideal Org project was what helped you wake up. Are the current ESO members not aware of how not thriving the church is? Wouldn't this be demoralizing? Yes, it would be demoralizing, which is why, as I mentioned earlier, the Sea Org makes every effort at information control to keep those Sea Org members in the dark. And it's not just what they keep away from the Sea Org members by censoring the internet or keeping them away from, you know, newspapers and media and stuff, but also with what they do put in their heads. I should have mentioned this earlier uh, here, too, because you have all the events and you also have the events are big for the public, the staff, and the Sea Org. Those are the big ones. And they do those things like, you know, eight, seven, eight times a year. But you also have in the Sea Org the additional indoctrination that occurs on an almost daily basis with base briefings and the uh, base musters. So you'll have, or the organization musters. So you'll have, um, you know, in the big blue complex, you have like five or six different Scientology organizations on that base. 
And so each of them huddles up every day individually. They do their own musters and, and meetings and stuff like that. But also there's a weekly staff meeting where all the base crew come and get briefed on the latest and greatest. And OSA will brief, command personnel will brief, or um, lower org staff will, you know, regular org staff will brief if there's something specific they need to be talking about. And often this is where there might be video briefings from it management or there might be news about coming up events and what's expected of everybody, and also briefings about PR stuff, like what kind of gains or motions are moving forward that Scientology is, you know, trying to make inroads on, uh, you know, and all the fluff and everything that you see Scientology put out to the public, they do also internally PR all that stuff too. So the Sea Org really does think, you know, for years I thought, we were having great success in Colombia. We were expanding into Indonesia and Taiwan. We were moving in on Russia. You know, China was maybe a possibility of getting into eventually. You know, Japan was going great guns. Like there was all this motion happening. And of course, you know, West US was leading the charge with the ideal orgs. And it was only after I got out into these orgs that I actually saw the truth of the matter. I mean, I saw statistically that the orgs were not doing so great back when I was in management. And I would go out to the orgs from time to time and I would see that they were not doing so great. But I was still under the impression at that point that uh, it was only in the West U.S. or it was only in these tiny little orgs that things were not really so great. And look at our bigger orgs and they're doing well and eventually we'll get all these little tiny podunk orgs up to the size of the big ones. And obviously, you know, these other places that we see and hear about in the events, well, they're doing so great. So it was, you know, it was only in our own backyard, I thought, that we were having problems and Scientology was going great guns everywhere else. Well, once I got around to more orgs, and I also, after I did the RPF and got a real international view of Scientology from talking to all these RPFers who were from all over the world, because uh, I was in Los Angeles and that was the biggest RPF in the world, and they were sending everybody to it. So, um, so I kind of also got this, you know, sort of world view of Scientology and found out that, no, it wasn't really going so great anywhere. And then when I went out again, after I finished that, then I saw the orgs in kind of a different light. And I just saw the whole ideal org thing and how they were opening and there were all these people and everything was supposed to be great. But actually, it was just more smoke and mirrors and nonsense. And these orgs were not any better or brighter or wonderful than the podunk orgs, you know, is really the, the situation. So that was, that was the whole picture that kind of uh, opened my eyes on that. And of course, that fit opened my eyes. It's going to open other Sea Org members' eyes too. And, they have, and of course, it has in some ways. And we've heard that from some people who have left. Blake Nestle. Do you think Tommy Davis isn't talking because he still believes? Or do you think they have something on him to compel that silence? You know, it's kind of anybody's guess with Tommy Davis. You know, the whole time that I was in Scientology, I think I saw him from a distance like twice. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I ever interacted with the guy even once. Um, he, you know, and then he's left Scientology years ago, uh, and we've conjectured as to how and why, but it, we're pretty sure we understand what happened with that. Um, and now, since then, he's worked for James Packer, he's, you know, gotten divorced, he's gotten remarried, he's, you know, he's just living his life. 
And it doesn't look to me like Scientology is much a part of that life as far as him doing bridge services or whatever. We're not seeing his name pop up in any completion lists or anything. So if he is doing Scientology services, it's on the DL. And, um, you know, his mother and father are Scientologists, so he's got every reason to not rock the boat or make noise or, or speak out if he is no longer a believer. And it very well might be that he's you know, kind of done with the whole thing, but he needs to maintain ties and stay, as we say, under the radar. So, you know, it's kind of anybody's guess on that. And I never, I just don't know the guy on a personal level. So making any kind of, um, you know, assumptions about his, you know, his motives or intentions, I just, I can't really go there. So that's why you don't hear me really talk about Tommy Davis very much. Preacher 1138. Could you please say huge? That's a word I think we should keep. Huge. Huge. <laughs> there you go. Huge. <laughs> Eon Net. If IRS revokes tax exemption status on Scientology Church, how damaging will this be for a church? It would be quite damaging. They would start owing a lot more in taxes. Um, and that would cascade out to Scientologists who would no longer have tax exemption on the services they were taking. So they would actually be able to spend even less on Scientology if they weren't getting, you know, charitable donations or, you know, deductions on their donations. Um, so that would, be a, uh, that would be a fairly significant blow. If they could lose that tax exemption, I think they could then be moved in on to having to start paying minimum wage to their employees because they're no longer, you know, could that be floated, right? Or could they still get away with that under the religious exemption? I don't know. I'm not, I have no idea what the law says on all of that. So that would be kind of interesting to watch play out. I'm sort of thinking that eventually it would turn against them and they would have to start paying wages and that would definitely start impacting the church's books uh, in a fairly significant way in a sh fairly short amount of time. So I think um, it would be the first of a domino effect of things that would eventually lead to the destruction of Scientology. And I think that the church Scientology, of course, knows that quite well, which is why they will do anything to maintain their tax-exempt status. Ascari Navarro, would you consider getting another tattoo? Yeah, absolutely I would. Uh, I've got one planned for here. Um, it's going to be, uh, why so serious? <laughs> and I don't know if I've got, you know, I, beyond that I haven't thought of any other ink to get. Seaward Hot Glass. Have you ever looked into Jay-Z Knight and the Ramtha cult? If so, do they have any association with Scientology? I have never looked into that, so I cannot answer you on that point. Sorry. Neon Cat. Will Nora Crest be back for another interview? I hope so. I would like to arrange that, but um, we'll, we'll have to see. It's been, uh, it, it has not been easy to set that up. And, and that could be totally fine. You know what I mean? It's, I'm not saying that because there's some problem. It's just Nora's moved on with her life, and I don't think she really is interested in talking about Scientology so much anymore. Blake Nestle. Does Scientology live to see the 22nd century? No, I don't think they will. I think that Scientology will be gone by that point. Or 
it will have morphed into something that will not be what it is in its current abusive form. It will have to mainstream and it will have to acclimate to the society and that means it's going to have to dump a bunch of stuff it's doing now. And if it does, then that means it'll join the ranks of regular mainstream religions, just like the Mormons are doing right now. So it's a process, it takes a long time, but you can go from the destructive cult to mainstream religion thing. And I even have a little bit of a theory that uh, all religions start out as destructive cults because they have to in order to uh, cohese well enough and strongly enough to be able to grow enough to uh, mushroom into a mainstream sort of thing. That's a, It's a very, very simplified thing. It's not like I'm a sociologist and I've put a whole lot of work into that. It's just a general little idea, but I think that's uh, how that stuff works. And I, I don't think Scientology, and certainly in honor of its current leadership, I don't think it's going to be possible to make the changes necessary for that evolution to happen. David Miscavige is all about abusing the hell out of people. So, you know, it really all depends on what happens when he disappears, one way or the other, because there's going to become a point, where, you know, where David Miscavige is going to be around anymore, and Scientology will be, and then what? You know, and that's going to be, I think, the real decision point on uh, what, what happens uh, with Scientology into the future. Master of the Arcane. What makes church, church, and Scientology being a sect? What's the difference? Well, there's a lot of differences. We have a checklist, you could say, or a list of uh, things that are characteristics of destructive cults, which are not necessarily characteristics of mainstream religions or, or churches. Um, so, you know, you don't, uh, churches don't have to be, for example, you know, focused intensively and extremely on making money. Churches don't have to foster a severe, extreme us-versus-them mentality. Churches don't have to uh, engage in shunning or disconnection. They can have an open-door policy, take it or leave it. If you like what we're doing, then be part of what we're doing. And if you don't, hey, man, there's the door. Have, knock yourself out, you know. And they, they don't have to do those different things that the destructive cults do, right? Uh, at least they shouldn't have to, you know, from a moral perspective. These are all morally objectionable activities that these things are engaged in, that these groups are engaged in. Um, churches don't necessarily have to do those things and can still be um, flourishing, prospering little activities. So that's, those are the, that's the differences I see it. Chris Klonotas, how lavishly does DM live? As far as I know, David Miscavige never wants for anything, and everything in his life is at a standard that is actually kind of hard to describe, but if you could say the very best of every single thing in his life, all the details of his life are tuned to be perfect. Not just good, not just really good, not just great, but perfect. Um, you know, his stereo equipment, his living facility, right, his residence, um, his travel arrangements, his clothing, all the things of his life, right? There is an, an enormous amount of attention put on all the little details of his life. Uh, this is what his aides and his chef and his assistants and his communicators and all these people, that's, that's what they do. So, um, so that's, and that's, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm speaking in very general terms, even though I'm, I'm saying it's all very detailed. 
because I can't really speak more to it than that, right? I just know the standards of all the things around him. And I have seen firsthand how much trouble people get into when they in any way miss on one of those details or piss him off somehow. Uh, you know, if you if you anger him, it could be, depending on his mood, it could be instantly you are declared a suppressive or you are on the RPF or you are in the hole. I mean, just like that. It, it's just that fast. And you, and you never know what it is that's going to set the person off. So you get into this mindset where everything has to be perfect all the time. And this, that's not crazy making. I mean, that is absolutely crazy making, right? So that's, um, that's, the, that's the lifestyle of David Miscavige. Ascari Navarro. Hey, I wanted to know if an ex-members contacted you for support. Also, would you do a network to help those that have gotten out but need assistance? I'm contacted all the time by former members of Scientology and other destructive cults. And I, you know, I do the best I can. I'm not a, a licensed therapist or and I don't pretend to be. Um, but if somebody wants my advice on something or just wants somebody to talk to who's going to understand the experience, then I've definitely put myself there for people. Um, I'm not going to start a network. I'm not going to try to become an, an organization or put some kind of organizational structure there. I have contributed to the Aftermath Foundation's motion and movement and, and uh, work behind the scenes on that. Um, and that's, that's my contribution in that direction. Um, and because I don't feel qualified to do more than that. You know, if I had some letters after my name or, or, you know, had the time to go off to school and, and, uh, and become a counselor or something, then I might do that. But I, I don't have that time or the resources to do it. So I just help out as I can. Master of the Arcane. Have you ever read Nietzsche? No, I have not actually sat down and read anything that Nietzsche wrote. I've read various articles and essays about Nietzsche and about some of his work. Hubbard used to make fun of him all the time, called him Sneezy, and with the big mustache and everything. Said he was, uh, you know, writing about Superman while he was uh, <laughs> you know, dying in his bed. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. That was Hubbard's take on it. I don't have a take on Nietzsche because I haven't really read the guy. Um, so that's all I can say about him. Okay, well, not exactly a full half hour, but, uh, but we felt some time there and with some answers to some questions that I know you guys wanted to, to hear. So I hope that those gave you, the, the, those were satisfactory answers for you anyway. And thank you very much for coming around. If you find my channel of interest, and uh, then please subscribe. And if you are already subscribed and want to keep it going, please contribute on Patreon to what we're doing here. Uh, it is what keeps the lights on and keeps the show going. And I very, very, very much appreciate all of the support of my Patreon supporters. All right, guys, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.